0: Hello, and welcome to the Untold Hour. This is Andrew Bowser, but don't worry, it's not a solo Bow Wow this week, okay? We're doing something altogether new. I'm going to give you the weird of the week, and then I'm going to throw to Jess, who did the main topic on her own this week, because we couldn't be together for the recording, but we're still bringing you the untold hour. That's how diehard we are, Okay. So stay tuned. Jess is going to be coming in soon with the main topic. And before I get into the weird of the week, I want to address something from last week. Okay, I went on a little bit of a rant at the top of the show. I was pretty hot. But look, I had gotten a film festival rejection letter just before signing into the Zoom and recording the untold hour. So the emotions were raw. But I want to explain something. I think people reacted to, so this week I mentioned I got into two festivals with my short film, Little Willie. And a lot of people were reacting saying, look, dude, that's great because you ranted last week. You were angry last week. But now look. But the thing is, I knew I was in those two festivals last week. My rant wasn't about not getting into any festivals. This is how privileged and insane I am. I was mad that I didn't get into some specific festivals, okay? So I, I mean, quite literally may have been looking a gift horse in the mouth. And now I feel like it looks ridiculous because I went on this rant about how shit's not working out. And then I uploaded these two great festivals that my short's going to play at really soon. And I might have looked a little ridiculous, but let me, I wanted to try to explain it. Okay, here's what I was upset about. And maybe in my rage last week, I wasn't this nuanced. One, I got an email from a festival that said the festival was canceled and then the festival was very much not canceled. That's what I was angry about. That's what kind of sparked the aggression. Uh, that that the filmmaker is kind of kept in the dark. That the filmmaker can be lied to. That the filmmaker can be kind of tossed about at the whim of the festival. And that that... That made me angry, right? Because we, we've got to live in this zone where we can't ask questions. Why didn't we get in? What didn't you like about the film? What do you mean you canceled but you didn't cancel? You don't get to ask questions as a filmmaker. You've got to be the, uh, the compliant partner. You've got to be the ever-so-eager artist, the, uh, the enthusiastic creative that's always going to be there, ready with your offering. You've got a festival? Here's my offering. You've got a festival? Here's my offering. You've got to play nice. Play nice, play nice, play nice. I've gotten rejected from my hometown film festival. You, you know, like, that feels pretty shitty. The Maryland Film Festival. No, 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 no room for the Maryland filmmaker. Okay, 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 okay. I've gone too far already. Okay, hold on, hold on. Wait, let's get this back on track. This isn't about the Maryland Film Festival. Hold on, hold on. Okay. That was the first thing. This is, uh, first of all, that rant wasn't about the Maryland Film Festival. That rant was about a festival that said they canceled the entire event and uh, yet had not. Okay? Yet had not. So that's what sparked the aggression. Let me get this back on track. The second thing that sparked the aggression was. I was rejected from a film festival. Goddamn, all of this sounds so fucking petty. But you know what? It's a glimpse behind the curtain. This is a this is a look at what it's like to be, you know, a creative trying to fucking hack it. Um, uh, the 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 other festival that set me off was that I was specifically reject, rejected by a festival that, oh boy, just felt tailor made for my short. Okay, so as a filmmaker, as a creative in LA, a a lot of what you're told is like kind of find your niche, right? Find your niche. And I said this last week, like my niche is this kind of throwback, absurdist horror comedy that's still grounded in reality, that still still has an emotional uh, believability. And I felt like I was rejected by the Throwback Horror Emotional Believability Festival. That's that's what happened. And they also happened to have a special guest at their festival who is an actor in my film. Hey, <laughs> so that felt like an extra special fuck you. And I'm just I'm be, I'm being honest. You know, you're 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 taught to find your niche. So you find your niche and you say, well, like this horror. This throwback horror is my niche. And, like, these people are my niche. These people that I put in the film because I love them. I fucking love these people. And maybe there's a niche for these people at these festivals. And guess what? There is. In fact, hey, people, come to my festival. Hey, film, don't come to my festival. That's a confusing message, okay? That's what I was confused about last week. And it spins you around a little bit because if you feel like you can't get into the niche that you've been trying to carve out, then what fucking space is there for you, my guy? If you can't get into the niche, you can't get into the niche. It's as if somebody had a weird Satanist guy convention and I wasn't invited. (laughs) That's how it kind of feels. Okay, so we followed up last week's rant that I somewhat regretted with a new rant that was more personal and detailed than before. But what can you do? What can you do? Because you're riding the wave. That's what I was angry about, okay? Those are the two things. A festival that said they weren't existing anymore and yet still existed just without your film. And a festival that said there's no room for your film, but we will take one of your actors as a special guest. And let's get them front and center. Your movie, however, can shit a brick. Okay. That's what I was angry about. The truth is, my film is still playing a lot of wonderful festivals, and I feel like I look like an asshole For fixating on the negative instead of celebrating the positive. And the truth is, that does make me an asshole. It does. It does make me an asshole. And that's a problem I'm trying to solve. Let's focus on the positive. Let's not take things down to zero. Let's look at what's working. And what's working is weird of the week. Let's dive in to weird of the week. Let's slap On some weird news about a knife made of shit. What? What do you mean, Bowser? How can there be news about a knife made of shit? Well, I'll tell you. A man who made knife from frozen poop is among the 2020 IG Nobel winners. I don't know what the fuck an IG Nobel winner is. But let me read you this article. Maybe this year's IG Nobles, the Spoof Prizes for dubious but humorous scientific achievement, should have been renamed the Ick Nobels. An anthropologist who tested an urban legend by fashioning a knife out of frozen human feces and a man who found that spiders oddly give scientists who study insects the heebie-jeebies are among the 2020 winners. Because of the coronavirus pandemic, Thursday's 30th annual IG Nobel Ceremony was a 75-minute pre-recorded virtual affair instead of the usual live event at Harvard University. Even so, it managed to maintain some of the event's traditions, including real Nobel Prize laureates handing out the amusing alternatives. It was a nightmare, and it took us months, but we got it done, said Mark Abrahams editor of the Annals of Improbable Research magazine, the event's primary sponsor. This year's winners also included a collection of world leaders who think they're smarter than doctors and scientists and a team of Dutch and Belgian researchers who looked at why chewing and other sounds people make drive us crazy. Metin Aaron has been fascinated since high school by the story of an Inuit man in Canada who made a knife out of his own excrement. The story has been told and retold But is it true? Aaron and his colleagues decided to find out. Aaron, an assistant professor of anthropology at Kent State University in Ohio and co-director of the university's experimental archaeology lab, used real human feces frozen to minus 50 degrees centigrade and filed to a sharp edge. He then tried to cut meat with it. The poop knives failed miserably, he said in a telephone interview. There's not a lot of basis empirically for this fantastic story. The study is a little gross, but makes an important point. There are a lot of narratives out there based on phony or unproven science. The point of this was to show that evidence and fact-checking are vital, he said. Richard Vedder won an IG Nobel for his paper looking at why people who spend their lives studying insects are creeped out by spiders. His paper, Arachnophobic Entomologists Why Two Legs Make All the Difference, appeared in the journal American Entomologist in 2013. Vetter, a retired research associate and spider specialist who worked in the entomology department at the University of California, Riverside for 32 years, found during the course of his work that many insect lovers hate spiders. All right, I thought I was reading an article about a poop knife, and now I'm talking about why entomologists hate spiders. That's crazy to me because I don't really have a problem with spiders. I often think when I encounter a spider, why are people more scared of spiders than anything else? I think spiders are chill. I'll let them crawl on me and laugh before I flick them off. A lot of times if I have to go out to my yard late at night and do something like turn off the the uh, irrigation system or you know uh, bring something in I left outside I have to walk through a spider web and I always try to take the spider and move it to a safe place I like spiders and I'm not an entomologist It always struck me as funny that when I talked to entomologists about spiders, they would say something along the lines of, Oh, I hate spiders, he said in a telephone interview. He found that many bug lovers had a negative experience with a spider, including bites and nightmares. The fact that spiders are often hairy, fast, silent, and have all those creepy eyes freak out entomologists. Well, that seems like exactly what entomologists should not be freaked out by. This year's IG Nobel for Medical Education was shared by a group of world leaders, including U.S. President Donald Trump, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Russian President Vladimir Putin for their attitude around the pandemic. Now we're getting down to it. These are all individuals who realize that their judgment is better than the judgment of people who have been studying this their entire lives and were more insistent about it, Abraham said. Abraham has made efforts to reach out to the world leaders to accept their awards with no luck. It would have been fun fun for them to take part, he said. Damien Dennis and his colleagues earned the IG Nobel in medicine for pioneering a new psychiatric diagnosis, misophonia, getting annoyed by noises others make. Dennis, a professor at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands and a psychiatrist who specializes in patients with anxiety, compulsive and impulsive disorders, was inspired by a former patient who became so enraged by people who sneezed that she felt like killing them. I had a lot of knowledge about compulsive disorder, but these complaints did not meet any existing clinical picture, he said in an email. In order to keep the tradition of real Nobel Prize winners handing out the IG Nobels, organizers came up with a bit of video wizardry. Each winner was mailed a document that they could print out that included instructions on how to assemble their own cube-shaped prize to make it look as if the real Nobel laureates were handing them out. They handed their prizes off-screen, and the winner reached off-screen to pull in one they had self-assembled. As usual, most winners welcome the recognition that comes with the spoof prize, sort of. Denny said that while the IG Nobels ridicule legitimate scientific work, they also bring attention and publicity. Darren attended the IG Nobel ceremony in 2003 when he was an undergraduate student at Harvard, so he was thrilled to finally win one of his own. To be honest, it was a dream come true. Oh, that was a story that I thought was going to be about a poop knife, and then it became a story about entomologists frightened by spiders. Then it became a story about people that think sneezes are worth killing someone over. Altogether, that was a story about these spoof awards that are given out to mock scientific achievements. I think that's pretty funny. I can imagine being upset by somebody that makes certain noises that get under your skin. Have you ever experienced that? I had a roommate in college who breathed very heavily at night as he was falling asleep And he also glued CDs to the wall. He hot glued CDs to the wall. He cooked only uh, seafood. And he um, watched Dragon Ball Z and James Bond. And I think he's actually a very successful programmer now. In fact, I'm going to look him up. Hold on. Let me see where this guy works now. Whoa! Actually, dude! Dude! My roommate from college, I mean, if this is the same dude, my roommate from college in film school, School of Visual Arts, SVA, 2000, baby! He's a VFX? He's a VFX artist on huge movies. Big things. He's a technical director for VFX Pipeline, on X-Men, on Mission Impossible, on Spongebob, on... The Loud House on The Rise of the Ninja Turtles, that awesome animated show with a kick-ass theme song by Matt Mahaffey. I mean, come on, Watchmen. Holy shit, A-Team, Tron Legacy. Well, my roommate from college that cooked seafood and glued CDs to the wall is far more successful than I am in his field. Congratulations, dude. I won't say your name, but that is him. Because I'm looking up where he's from and his birth date. And it is totally my roommate from college. He also worked on Real Steel. Remember that movie about fighting robots? Of course you do. Okay. What is next? Florida boy gets trapped in cooler while playing. Alright. Now look. This is going to be our last Weird of the Week Because I've already ranted and yelled for what feels like 20 minutes. And that poop knife story spun off into three other directions. But this is a very important story because I have a personal connection to it. Florida boy gets trapped in cooler while playing prompting safety recall. A Florida boy found himself trapped in a cooler while playing hide-and-go-seek, prompting multiple safety recalls. The Waynes family of Pompano Beach, Florida, broke into a panic earlier this month when they found their five-year-old son locked inside a large cooler on the family's back deck. I wanted to, like, play hide-and-go-seek, Nicholas said, but I, like, found, like, a not-good hiding spot inside the cooler. Surveillance video from the family's home showed the child crawling into the 72-quart cooler at around 5 p.m. Saturday, March 2nd. He was inside for about two minutes playing with the top slightly ajar and resting on the latch, but things took a turn fast. The video appeared to show the boy pulling the latch and forcing it to close from the inside. He screamed for help when he realized that he couldn't get out. Thankfully, his parents were nearby to rescue him. We just grabbed him for dear life, his mother Maria Wayne said. We didn't want another family to not hear their child and go through this. His father Robert Wayne said he was upset with the cooler's manufacturer, Igloo, because there wasn't a way to open the container from the inside. He blamed it on a design flaw and said, It shouldn't be easy for a child to latch the cooler from the inside. I know we're all supposed to watch our kids and make sure they don't crawl into a cooler, but as we know, it only takes a second to turn the other way. Igloo appeared to agree with the family. It issued a recall of four products on Friday in the wake of the incident. It has been brought to our attention that a child recently inadvertently trapped himself inside one of our products. The company said in the statement, We are very sorry for the the scare this incident must have caused the child and his family and very happy no one was injured. It attributed the incident to a performance malfunction with the cooler's latch. We have immediately identified the product in question. Our engineering team has determined what could have been the cause of the incident, a performance issue with a latch on the cooler with the ability to lock. If the user attached their own padlock or similar device, the company said, we have identified three other products with the same latch with the potential to encounter the same issue. Now, why does this story resonate with me? I think I might have told this story on the podcast before, but let me retell it. One time I was at my buddy's Alex, my buddy Alex's house. Now, Alex was my best friend He was that friend you remember. When you think about your childhood best friend, I think about Alex. We had so many stories together. We experienced so many things together. I remember when Alex's parents first started going through a divorce. And I remember watching Rocky and Bullwinkle with him to try to get his mind off things. I remember listening to Weird Al songs to try to get Alex to not think about how his dad wasn't sleeping at the house that night. Where was he going? Was he staying in a hotel? I don't know, Alex. Let's just listen to Weird Al. I remember being with Alex at his uh, family's house in Jersey when Jeffrey Dahmer was arrested. And me and Alex couldn't understand what was happening when we saw on the news these blue barrels full of disintegrated body parts were being carted out of this man's apartment in Milwaukee. And to cope with that, we wrote a Weird Al song about Jeffrey Dahmer. Okay, Alex was my guy. And one time I was over at Alex's house... And we decided to play hide-and-go-seek. And And his older brother suggested I get in the family trunk. This trunk that was in the living room. And I thought, well, sure, let me give him a name so that we don't uh, vilify this guy. Well, his older brother's name was Slappy. Let's say his name was Slappy. Slappy suggested I get in the family trunk. And I said, Slappy, that sounds like a great idea. I trust you, you're Alex's older brother. Let me climb into this trunk. I climbed into this trunk and Slappy slapped that top lid shut and then locked it and then put heavy shit on top of it. And I was trapped. Looking at this article about the kid that was trapped in the igloo cooler it's about the size of that trunk and he was about the size of me and it's given me flashbacks i got in that trunk and as the second slappy closed the lid i thought well my guys I'm fucked. You ever have that realization as a kid? You got in over your head. The second I got inside that trunk, I thought, yeah, that's a bad decision, my dude. And now you're in the dork. And you're experiencing your worst goddamn nightmare you can't move out of the fetal position and you're stuck in the pitch black and I could hear Alex looking for me and I could scream and Alex could hear me but he couldn't get me out of the trunk and why didn't Slappy help because he thought it was funny and once I realized that my pain and my panic was making Slappy laugh That's when I really lost my shit because I realized that no level of distress or panic or anxiety expressed would cut through to the people on the outside that could actually get me out of the situation, namely Slappy, especially because Slappy was stronger than Alex. And even if Alex wanted to get me out of that trunk, Slappy would be able to stop Alex from getting me Out of that trunk. So I was in that trunk for... mm, Mmm... I'ma say an hour. I'ma say a cool hour... Of being in that trunk. Losing my goddamn mind. Until Alex could finally wrestle Slappy away... And convince him... We've gotta get Andy out of that trunk... Or he's going to fucking disappear. And he finally did. And I finally emerged... And it's funny, as a kid, you stay angry for, I don't know, 90 seconds? I think 90 seconds out of that trunk, I had a meltdown. How would you do that? Why would you lock me in that trunk? I couldn't breathe. I thought I was never getting it in. All right, you want to go play baseball? I mean, 90 seconds of panic, and you're out of it. I think that's the, uh, that's the limit as a kid. 90 seconds of panic, and then you're through, And you're ready to play baseball. Hey, I get to be Wade Boggs. Okay, well, you get to be Clemens. I'll be Wade Boggs. All right. Well, look, we covered a lot of ground in that 22 minutes. (laughs) Let me reiterate, I'm an asshole. I was angry about a few rejections, whereas I need to be focusing on the celebrations. There are some amazing people that are responding to my short film positively. And accepting it and celebrating it. And that's where my focus should go, not on the people that aren't accepting it, that aren't understanding it. And that is their prerogative. And that means simply, my work is not for them. And it doesn't mean my work is profound. And it doesn't mean that they're simple for not recognizing the work. It doesn't mean that. There are different reasons for different people accepting or recognizing work, runtime personal indifference uh literally just the reason that i wouldn't respond to an ari aster film might be the reason why somebody doesn't respond to my movie maybe my movie's too silly maybe it's got too many jokes maybe it's too dark maybe it's too light it doesn't matter the point is instead of fixating on these things and on why i'm not being accepted in fucking every realm imaginable why don't i look at the positives and see the amazing line of fe- uh, lineup of festivals that have accepted Little Willie and that are screening it this October. And that's a question for myself. And I thank you all for listening to my craziness and for having some empathy for my situation. But I do recognize I'm uh, being a little binary in my thinking and I think a little shallow in my thinking and I'm working on... Um, having a more holistic 360 view of my journey. And with that, let us throw to the wonderful, amazing Miss Jessica Chobot with our main topic for this week.
1: And welcome to my latest experiment. Jess here. I'm going to be rolling solo with the main story today. I've actually pre-recorded this for our podcast uh, today that you're listening to um, as, a type, as a kind of um, test to see if there's a way for me to re- pre-record some content before I hit the road again for the second segment of, of my um, ongoing adventure and thereby alleviating some of the responsibility from Bowser and giving him and Aristotle a little bit of a break. So fingers crossed that this works. And with that being said, I want to bring you the, I'm going to assume little known story of how the U.S. was bombed during World War II in Oregon on the mainland. Most people know about Pearl Harbor, but I Don't think that many people know about this. So, yes, ask most U.S. citizens where and when the U.S. was attacked by the Japanese during World War II. And I would put money on the fact that most would reply Pearl Harbor. However, that wasn't the only time, nor was it the closest that they got to the U.S. mainland. They actually bombed the U.S. mainland during World War II. A naval aviator and warrant flying officer for the Imperial Japanese Navy took off from a Japanese sub, flew over the state of Oregon, and firebombed a state forest just outside of the town of Brookings. It was the one and only, up to this point, time that the U.S. has ever been attacked on the U.S. mainland, and yet very few people outside of World War II history buffs know that it happened. So the flight. On September 9, 1942, Imperial Japanese Navy pilot Nobuo Fujita launched his float plane from the long-range submarine aircraft carrier I-25, which had shelled the Oregon coastline while blindly shooting towards Fort Stevens a few months previously and began conducting the lookout air raids in southern Oregon. His mission was to drop incendiary bombs and start massive forest fires throughout the Pacific Northwest. Uh, that was the goal, which is ironically what is happening now naturally, specifically near the town of Brookings, Oregon. They were basically trying, they being the Japanese, were basically trying to draw the U.S. military's resources away from the Pacific Theater. Now, the Pacific Theater is called a, quote, theater Unquote, because in military terms, it refers to an area in which important military events are occurring. And the Pacific Theater, and specifically, was an area of contention between the Japanese and the Allies during World War II. So, basically, they were basically they were hoping to fly in, bomb the forests along the Pacific Northwest, causing a massive forest fire, in order to divert U.S. attention and resources away from the Pacific Theater and towards protecting the U.S. coastline and dealing with the disaster that was hopefully occurring, hopefully for them, uh, occurring at that time with the bombing and the forest fires, which is, yeah, which is kind of what we're dealing with right now. While passing over Mount Emily, Oregon, in his Yosuka E-14Y Glenn seaplane, Uh, Fujita dropped two bombs over an area known as Wheeler Ridge and set the state forest alight and leaving behind a crater um, three feet wide and about one foot deep, although failing in the ultimate goal of creating a major forest fire. So he did manage to create a fire, although it essentially just became a smoldering mass and didn't actually kick off a massive uh, forest fire. So during Fujita's attack, a Forest Service lookout named Howard Raz Gardner, Raz was his nickname, heard what sounded like a truck backfiring. He scanned the skies. He saw Fujita's plane circling above and called it in to the ranger station because he couldn't tell if it was enemy aircraft or friendly aircraft. The operator manning the calls at the station assumed it was one of many patrol planes that passed up and down the coast and didn't think much of it. Later, Gardner then spotted smoke coming up from the forest floor and radioed in for help with that. Still assuming that the damage was natural because Gardner believed that the smoke and the fire that he was seeing was actually caused by an electrical storm that had happened the day before. He took off towards the fire with a co-worker and they arrived at the spot where Fujita's bomb had hit and found that the forest was smoldering with fire co- Covering a circular area about fifty to seventy-five feet across, as well as finding a crater that showed signs of intense heat, like fused earth and rocks that kind of mimicked the uh, the the what's the word I'm looking for? The disposition of lava. That was not the word I was looking for, but I like it anyway. Uh, Later investigations of the site also found then thermite pellets and fragments of metal casing, including, I believe, the nose of the bomb that Fujita had dropped, thereby concluding that the area had actually been affected by a bomb. But despite all of these signs, it was still assumed for a while that the bombs dropped had accidentally been dropped by an American plane and not actually a mainland attack. So, because of this, there was a bit of a blackout. Um, they were able to keep a lot of this out of um, the hardcore news. Some local newspapers and gossip were picking up the story and floating around. But, um, but this, you know, a lot of people know about Pearl Harbor more because. A, it was so devastating, there were so many deaths involved, and the bombing of Oregon didn't really cause any major damage at all. But also because they, the president, who I believe was Harry S. Truman at the time, did put a little bit of a news clamp down on it for the sake of morale. He did not want anyone in the U.S. to know that the mainland was subject to attack. It's not the first time the U.S. was attacked on its own soil. Obviously, Pearl Harbor was considered that. There was a, a couple of things in Alaska that occurred. There were balloon bombs that were actually coming over into Oregon that the Japanese had set off, and that did manage to kill six people. But an actual flyover mainland premeditated attack, a super direct Like this one, Truman did not want folks to know about. So like I said before, there was a bit of a blackout. The president, Harry S. Truman, who I believe was the president at the time, immediately called for a blackout of all the news surrounding the event for the sake of morale, like I mentioned previously. In addition, no real damage was done, um, and so there was no real attention to be given to it, and Fujita ended up going home and began training other Japanese Navy pilots for the rest of the war, so he took off as well. In addition, the Army and the FBI also tried to keep the lid on it by conducting interviews and swearing people to secrecy. But for the most part, word, at least locally, had already started to trickle out. The nearby town of Brookings was already super abuzz with rumors about their near-miss with disaster. And local newspapers had started picking up and reporting on the story. So it wasn't a complete shutout, but it, it didn't take off nationally quite as much as folks would, would suspect it would. So what happened after the war? After the bombing of Oregon, Nobuo Fujita continued on as an Imperial Japanese Navy pilot until about 1944, where he was then transferred from the Navy to start training kamikaze pilots. Um, After the war, he opened up a hardware store in Ibakari Prefecture and essentially just became your everyday citizen. Fujita was then invited to Brookings, in 1962 by the town after the Japanese government secured the promise from the U.S. that he would not be tried as a war criminal. Um, they, they managed to secure that promise. Fujita agreed to go and decided to gift the town his family's 400-year-old katana as a sign of friendship. He also had brought that sword along uh, just in case things didn't go well uh, in order to commit seppuku. Uh, and, and yeah. But it it went well, and so instead, it was gifted as a sign of friendship, which I think is the better way to go. A quote from him talking about that time was, I did not know how people would react to me. I thought they would throw rocks or eggs or worse. And while his visit to the town did raise some controversy, overall his visit was treated with respect and affection. And because of this kind of reception, Fujita promised to invite Brookings students to Japan. And despite the bankruptcy of his company later on, he did keep his promise. He ended up co-sponsoring three students from the Brookings Harbor High School to Japan in 1985. He also returned to Brookings multiple times throughout his life, as well as becoming the city's unofficial ambassador, and he went back to Brookings in 1990, 1992, and then finally in 1995. At some point, he planted a tree at the bomb site as a gesture of peace, and then a few days before his death in 1997, he was made an honorary citizen of Brookings, with uh, thereby following up in 1998 with his daughter burying some of his ashes at the bomb site. And so there you go, guys. My quick little rundown of a bit of U.S. history that you probably didn't even know had happened. Um, Also, I'd like to say I can't imagine a story like this ending any more positively. This is just a great example of saying you're never too old to change your mind about things and uh, to realize that sometimes um, behaving kindly towards others is just the best way to go. Uh, yeah, so super, super cool. Hopefully you guys like this quick little story. Um, I am uh, I am fingers crossed that this works and uh, I will be talking to you guys very soon. Bye from Jess untoldians that is it for this episode of the untold hour thank you for joining us on this weird and wild ride into the bizarre
0: if you are interested in sharing your own story of the weird send us your listener stories to the pod at gmail.com
1: come join the untold hour convo over on my discord server and our facebook group
0: and you can follow us on our socials instagram at the untold hour and at untold on twitter